<laughs> Say something brilliant. No, I think the PHP part was the bad part of that equation. <laughs> no, honestly, like I can deal with PHP, but PHP plus feeling like I'm typing Java or C sharp, kill me. Brilliance coming right up. Lars is spitting some wisdom this morning. Actually, now that now the two GitHubers are here, can we please change? Can we please change the font back? We need yeah, to rebrand. Well, Elixir yeah. curmudgeons. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio. I am joined, as always, by a fabulous panel of co-hosts. We have with us today Stephen Nunez. Oh, hello. Hey, Stephen. We've got Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Welcome, Alex. We've got Lars Vickman. Hello. Hi, Lars. And Bruce Tate. Hi, everybody from Chattanooga. Hey, Bruce. All right. So before we jump in, we've got a lot of great stuff to talk about. We've got a question in our process mailbox that I think we're particularly excited to dig into. But first, a word from our fabulous sponsor, Graxio. Bruce, what's new with Graxio? Yes, yeah, so as we're recording, I am putting the finishing touch on the first release of Elixir NX. And I am so excited about this, just irrationally excited about this, because this was a giant gaping hole in the Elixir language, right? Can't do number crunching. And then it's, what's that? What's that about six months ago? And now we have this, this live and vibrant community with with live books and 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 a machine learning library and you know the science the side data project and all of these things that are kind of exploding around the space so about the time that this airs we will be getting to the axon library and so what, what we try to do with Groxio is rather than build build a curriculum around knobs and levers like a feature curriculum we base our programming on the, the core abstractions. I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, I'm sure you are not alone in being really excited about that content coming out and about everything that NX can do. So as always, we very much encourage our listeners to check it out. All right, so we have got a question in the process mailbox. Reminder to our listeners, ask us anything. Ask us things about Elixir, Erlang, the Beam, Tweet at Beam Radio One, hashtag process mailbox. We want to hear from you guys. And uh, if you ask us a question and we answer it, you get a free t shirt, which is a pretty sweet deal. All right. Our question today comes from Faisal Al Gurari. And Faisal asks Do you think it is sensible to adopt Live View as the default way of building Elixir web apps? How would you approach code organization, UX for unstable connections and high latency, and avoid using too much Live View for client side work? So much to dig into there. I know I've got some thoughts, but I'm going to open it up to you guys first. What do you think? Absolutely not. Cannot be done. <laughs> uh, it's it's essentially a toy at this point. Now, of course, of course, it's perfectly possible to to do projects in Live View and stick to mainly Live View. But also, as the question brings up, there are some things that you need to consider, such as unstable connections high latency and what cases live view is not well suited for but i think you'll find that it's suited for a surprising amount of of feature sets it's just a lot of ui these days isn't even necessarily real time so live view is typically snappier than at least any page refresh based ui and then like anything that needs to do API round trips, you're you're at the same level. While if there's if there's like client only uh, high fidelity sort of uh, UX stuff, yeah, then then you might want to drop into some of the JavaScript integrations that Live View actually offers. And there are things I would never pick Live View for, such as offline first, where it, where it's essentially at this point as far as I know, dead in the water. But most use cases for web web services is not offline first. So that's that's roughly my view on it. I definitely use it just for the sheer, sheer practicality of, of working with it. Yeah, I think that that's basically it. The, the main thing is that, that we need to decide in general as a programming community, what do we want to optimize? And there are so many cases that we just optimize the wrong thing. I remember when, when I was coding Java, 
And um, you know, everybody was talking about the performance of Java and all of the cost of, of all of this configuration, but it was worth it because you would save these microseconds of performance. And then we would use these frameworks that led to N plus one problems and, and kind of these remote connections and, and remote object access over the wire. And, and we would have these just hideous, hideously performing applications because we were thinking about the wrong kinds of things. And then we would, we would be, build these big fat relational databases and babysit them with a web UI and that's kind of the, the 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 main use case for Ruby on Rails, and and you know, it did that kind of thing really really well. So, I mean, I think that with with Live View, most of what we're doing today on the web is um, is are these kind of hyper active, hyper interactive applications, and and. These, the, the one page nature of them, the thing that you have to optimize is the programmer's brain through this complexity. And if you can't do that, you're basically dead in, in, in the water. And, and you're going to be, you know, when, when you're looking at these, these kind of small scenarios, these small corner cases, if you try to optimize for those, you're going to miss out on, on that huge win that LiveView provides. Yeah, I, I totally agree with more or less what you guys are both saying. And I think, Lars, you kind of hit it on the head when you said that unless you're optimizing for offline first, which you're probably not, um, I think LiveView is absolutely the way to go because to use maybe like a slightly tired phrase, the modern web, the modern web demands a lot of interactivity out of the box. Like if you're just building your run of the mill web app, the kind of thing that you used to reach for Rails, you know, and a CRUD app to do, you need all these kinds of like little interactions that people just have sort of come to expect, right? Like some sort of notification, things updating in real time, that basic level of interactivity, Live View is the absolutely perfect solution for. It can handle all of that and so much more. It can allow you to do it extremely quickly and productively, you know, within your own development lifecycle. And, um, I think it's just such a huge win for like 99% of what you need to do as a web developer. And then when you do have, I guess, Bruce, you were calling them corner cases, whether they're strictly corner cases or not, if you need to really handle super high latency offline first, you know, it might not be the solution for you, but most of the time, I think it's more than enough. Yeah, I think a lot about the, um, we always like have a major release of like a framework that's been tested in RC, uh, it's beta RC, RC1, and immediately it goes 5.0, 5.0.1, because when people actually start using it, they introduce the, uh, again, the, that corner case, it sort of comes out. I think LiveView is at a point where people should start using it and they're going to run into things. I guess it really has to do with your comfort level with being in a weird place at some point being like, oh, it's weird because I'm using this library and doesn't exactly do this because it collides with how it updates the DOM or some sort of like super edge case. Um, but I think that it's by using it and sort of smoothing out those edges that we get progress. I've worked with LiveView before there were uploads. And so if we can tell you that I had to do some hacky, hacky, hacky stuff to get uploads working. And then Chris was like, look, it's beautiful. Look at how nice it is. This problem sucked and now it sucks way less. It's actually really nice. Um, you know, same thing with like JS interop, like obviously we had hooks, but do you really want to make a round trip when you want to open a dropdown? No. Then we talked about Alpine integration and stuff like that. So I think it's, it's a matter of, should you use it? Yes. Use it because 90% of the problems that you, that you're going to run into happen, but you sussing out that 10% is going to really make it so that the framework is well-rounded and helps expose the primitives that need to be in the framework, right? It exposes that we do need a way to you know Im implement something like Alpine so that it, it you know can jump in at the right time uh, when the, the the DOM is being updated. So yes, go build things, go build all the things. It will work for the majority of the things that you you want to do. You probably will maybe if you're lucky run into something and then you're a hero because you found a thing. And then please submit a PR. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's cool about the whole live view process is that. This didn't start as like an Ajaxy, you know, to, to borrow a, a word that's a, it's a decade old, right? But it, it didn't start with the live JavaScript updates. It started with the base abstractions and, and essentially built on these one after another after another. 
And so it, it seemed for, for a long time that Elixir was a language that, that had this high level of like consistency, this, this low level of latency, this kind of smoothness and uniformity across individual interactions at a level that you would just never need, right? Until, you know, so it's, it's like you're, you're collecting these, you're winning these small pots and putting these blue chips in your pocket. And then all at once, like the, the live view and the Elixir team just kind of slam those on the table and they say, here's why all that stuff matters, right? It's that, you know, if, if you have a user that, um, that has like a, that has a, like a strange, like a, like a wide response time on the other end, the chances are that user is never going to um, hit that limitation in a response quest response model, right? But if you put that same thing um, in, in a live view scenario where, where you're getting thousands and thousands of interactions um, every hour, then of course you're gonna hit those, those problems. And that, that's why you don't see applications or, or frameworks like, like live view done well in other languages. It's all the blue chips are on the table and this thing just, just works. Yeah, another one echo what you said there, Bruce, where I mean, from a performance standpoint, I think I think LiveView is really, really hard to beat, even for a single page application. Um, like I was running some, uh, what's the built-in Chrome one? Lighthouse? Yeah, you can run that in the developer uh, console there. And every time I have a LiveView app, it gets A pluses across the board. And I don't have to do anything. I don't need to tweak any knobs. I don't need to you know, try to optimize. It's just out of the box, you know, 90 plus score on uh, on Lighthouse, which is amazing because I built some, you know, Vue.js apps and you, know, you, you, you have to do some tinkering and then you have to do some route splitting to make sure you're not uploading or, or trying to get the client to download half a meg of, of JavaScript. So I think for those, those high latency uh, situations, it's a really, really great uh, fit. But you know, like, like any tool, um, you definitely need to learn its nuances. And I think some of those nuances, you can, you can get by with additional tooling. So like Stephen mentioned, uh, Alpine's a really, really good tool for things that are only client facing. There's no reason to make round trips to the... Uh, the backend, just keep that all client side, a little bit of markup in, uh, in your HTML and the job is done. Um, so, you know, some of the other nuances they need to work around are, you know, some of the morph DOM problems where it tries its best to patch the DOM based on what you're passing back. But if you don't have, you know, liberal use of, uh, of IDs, sometimes the patching doesn't go as you expect, but uh, you know, these are things that you kind of learn along the way, kind of like in Vue.js 2, where you didn't get reactivity with objects and arrays. It's just something that you kind of learn and you're like, okay, I won't fall into that, that trap again. But uh, yeah, definitely something that's production ready and definitely something that I've, I've actually used for some client work. So that answers it. Yes, you should. <laughs> if you're thinking about using it, go ahead. Um, it's incredible. On that note of that excellent recommendation, I think we'll move on to our main topic for today and our main host, who is Alex. Alex, do you want to walk us through what you had in mind for today's episode? Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, so last week, uh, Bruce, uh, Frank Hunleth, and uh, myself uh, beta released our, our book on the Pragmatic uh, Bookshelf, which is a huge milestone, super happy. Uh, so the book is Building a Weather Station with Elixir and Nerves. And uh, with the book now in beta, I took some time to reflect on the, you know, the process of, of writing the book and thinking about kind of the content that, uh, that went into the, the book. Uh, and after thinking about it for a little while, the, the theme that kept sticking out in my head was how much like, project you're able to accomplish in such a short amount of writing. Because for those unfamiliar with the, the Pragmatic Express series, they're more like shorter books, uh, kind of like Chris McCord's uh, Metaprogramming and Elixir. So, you know, really hyper-focused. And you kind of focus on one on to, one topic and, and uh, see it through on this little form factor. But uh, yeah, in those, you know, just about 100 pages, we were able to cover, you know, building the physical weather station, uh, deploying nerves to it, setting up a development workflow with nerves and, uh, and flashing firmware to it, uh, capturing sensor data for the weather station, publishing that to a Phoenix uh, REST API that you also uh, put together in the book. And then find, uh, finally, visualizing all that time series data that's stored in TimeScale DB using Grafana, all within 100 pages, which I think was was pretty amazing that we were able to cover that much uh, material in that short amount of, of book. But uh, so this got me thinking: 
how productive the tooling is in Elixir and how I don't think the book would have been necessarily possible in its form factor in another language uh, or ecosystem. And I have a couple of books on my bookshelf, you know, from, uh, you know, doing uh, Raspberry, Raspberry Pi stuff with Python and doing Arduino stuff with, you know, kind of like their, their C dialect. And those books are way, way longer. And I, I didn't feel like I was able to build as much as I did uh, in this book um, as we were going through it. So, yeah, this, this really got me thinking how productive the language and the, the runtime are kind of outside the context of this book and how this theme of productivity is something that we you know, often bring up uh, here on the podcast. Yeah, with that, I definitely want to kind of dive in and unpack what, you know, what parts of the language and the ecosystem really give you that productivity. You know, we, we were chatting about LiveView just a couple minutes ago. You know, what are some other tools that uh, really make you feel like you have superpowers? And then, you know, maybe where do we have some blind spots? Where can we do, where can we do better? Yeah, so one of the cool things about, about that book and, and Alex, I mean, I would put the authors in, in the reverse order. <laughs> but one of, the, um, one of the cool things about what you did in that book and the way that you told the story is the way that the abstractions are layered, right? And, and the role that the major abstractions play in the language. So there's the tool chain that's, that's really about taking the kind of the surrounding productivity tools and Elixir and, and repurposing those to a nervous-based experience, right? Where you have this idea of a build and a build plugs in an environment. Well, in nerves, um, all they had to do was was pair an environment and a target together, right? Like a Raspberry Pi in this case. And then there's the OTP um, slice of that, which, which allows you to have this kind of clean, uniform way to process the, the self-healing aspects that are so important when you're working with hardware, right? And then, and then there's the language abstractions that allow you to build like the, the user interface and, and the web layers on top. But it seems like when you attack problems like these and other languages, the mechanism, the primary mechanisms for extension get in your way, right? Like object-oriented programming and inheritance. And, and you really don't have the dispatch mechanisms and procedural languages like C. But with, with Elixir, you have you have this, you have the dispatch with pattern matching, right? And you also have the capability to, um, to extend the language with things like macros when things break down and, and you get this, um, these beautiful layered abstractions that are just extraordinarily productive. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that sentiment that um, code organization in Elixir and in Phoenix is something that even just in the past few months, I feel like I've gotten a lot more comfortable with and I have seen my productivity kind of skyrocket. And I'll link that directly to the experience of working on the live view book with you, Bruce. I think, you know, I read your previous book with James um, on designing Elixir systems. And I wouldn't say that I struggled with it, but I, I wasn't really able to put it into practice at that time, this idea of kind of how to organize your core layer, your boundary layer presentation layer, but then actually collaborating with you on this, it's like something just clicked for me. And I found myself after we had, I can almost like remember the day that this happened. We had this one conversation about how to organize these code layers. And then I went back to the chapter I was writing and it was like night and day. Like I just flew through it. I felt like the code was coming together so quickly and so beautifully and everything just felt right. Um, so I don't know if that's necessarily like a language feature per se. It, the language, of course, allows us to apply these patterns, but um, I have found myself to be much more productive in the past couple of months just because I now feel that I do have an understanding of where code belongs um, in the context of your Elixir app, your Phoenix app, your LiveView app, and it lets me move a lot faster and build things that grow really well every time I need to add something new. I know exactly where that code needs to go. Um, and of course, different languages and frameworks have their own solutions for where code belongs. And it's kind of a never ending debate, but it never felt more right to me than it did in writing Elixir and Phoenix apps. Yeah, I think um, I can throw a little nuance at sort of the productivity idea where, so I had the pleasure of reviewing the, the weather station book. And like you said, it's, it's amazing how much ground you managed to cover in that book. And it's not just like 
instructions for installing software throughout the book, but you actually put some like paragraphs and descriptions and explanations in there, uh, which probably wouldn't have fit otherwise. But I think some of the extremer cases of productivity with, with all the things we have, Phoenix and LiveView and Nerves, are sort of on the paved path and the there, there's a golden path where you're extremely productive where you can get so much done and where you'll feel essentially very little pain if you already understand the, the basics of the language but having dealt with nerves uh, a bit a fair bit myself i also know that like if you veer off of the supported path there's like okay yeah now i need to implement a library to talk to a sensor like you cover that in the book i thought that was impressive because you have like two sensors that are there already are libraries for and one which you essentially implement from scratch by looking at the data sheet and that's like that's a little bit of pain but the get book gets you through it but if you end up there on your own like uh, yeah it's a little bit of pain if you end up sort of off towards, I need to build my own board and run this on cost, custom hardware. Like that's more pain, of course, because you're doing something wilder. You're doing something more complicated. There's still good support for doing that in nerves, but of course you're going to feel more pain. And I think the same thing sort of comes with live view and anything you do in Phoenix. Like the more you push the system, of course you're going to, so sort of your productivity is going to taper off and you're going to feel more pain to some extent. But you'd be, I think a lot of people would be surprised how many things are still within that sort of sweet spot due to Elixir fundamentally being very high level of abstraction. And that's partly due to Erlang being very high level of abstraction on its own. It decided early on that like, oh, we're a functional programming language. We do processes, we do scheduling, we do all this cool stuff, message passing, actor model, sweet. That's a high level concept. And on top of that, we've kept building nice abstractions. And now we're dealing with high level of abstraction frameworks on top of high level foundations. And they're not these leaky abstractions that you get if you sort of try to stack things that are very ad hoc or where the, the foundation is a little bit of a lie. <laughs> so I, I think there's, there's a lot of base power there, but of course, I think you should also be prepared. Like the, the productivity can drop off and you can hit some really hard corners if you go, go off and like, yeah, oh, no one has implemented a driver for this or uh, the library I want which is fairly complex, doesn't exist. Then you can hit pretty hard turns. I think the tools for and primitives to support you building that is still there and are very good. But the, like, the challenges are still out there. It's still software engineering. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and um, it's, it's interesting that, um, so I was talking about, I was talking to James Gray um, about Sophie, what you were talking about, and Lars, what you were talking about, just this last week, and, and we basically talked about the idea that one of the things that unlocked the Designing Elixir Systems book, and also unlocks Phoenix with, with Plug and um, Nerves with this concept of building this repeatable core, is, is this CRC idea. Um, and, and Sophie, I remember having the conversation with you when the light came on and seeing that that concept allows you to build the layers of complexity. And, and um, Lars, it, it, it essentially talks directly to what, what you're presenting, right, as, as, a, as the hard turns that you have to take. But the, the difference between taking a hard turn in the Elixir framework is that you have all the tools that you need to first layer your abstractions and second, build the dispatches to get control where you need it at the right time. And third, with the macros that can allow you to kind of um, chunk these much more complex um, ideas when, when you do 
hit these hard turns. Yeah, I, I want to, well, first of all, I want to say, make sure you go to pragprog.com, pick up a copy of this book. It's really, really great. Um, I'm so excited to, to dive deeper into it, but go check it out. Please go buy it. Um, the one thing that I'm sort of hearing and noticing is that the, the reason why productivity is high when it is, is because someone took the time to build those abstractions well at first. And of course we have the beam, right? We've, we've got all the great things that Lars is talking about with the scheduler and processes, uh, yeah, processes and um, immutable data, all the things that sort of become the way things are, the way you do things, um, where it becomes self-evident and exemplary and just how you build things and it becomes easy because there is a, a path um, but I think that as we build things, as we build new libraries and new ways of, uh, or new spaces we go into, uh, we have to kind of build those new abstractions and we have to kind of, the, the community has shown that we do do that. So one thing that I think about a lot about is Chris McCord, when he was working on Phoenix, worked on the channels layer, like first. He said, this is gonna be really important, right? So like how it works, the performance of it, really hammering and making sure that it, it felt like a, a member of the airline community with message sends and handle info and like the, the, the contracts that felt right. And then you can see that because that work was put in, it took off very easy to, to connect concepts about joining and authorizing accounts, you know, or, or authorizing requests became self-evident, which I think is really good. One thing that I think we as community members have to think about is to maintain that productivity, we need to continue to build those structures that make the right way self-evident. I think a lot of the work that Bruce did in designing electric systems and is being furthered on with Sophie in the live view book and sort of like Alex is like sort of showing what is the right way to build something from scratch, right? You, you have a sensor, you have a, an API you're working with, a new library you're writing. How do we write things that make it easy to do the right thing by mistake? Um, and I think that that's how we got to productivity today because the right thing you do the right thing by mistake a lot of the time and the way we keep it is if we kind of keep i guess preaching sort of the right way right good design good uh ways of implementing um these interfaces in all the libraries that we build um, i think we're doing okay we're doing a good job we've gotten this far in this conversation um and there's been so much to talk about in regards to what about Elixir as a language makes us productive, but we haven't even yet really dug into all of the fabulous tooling that I'm sure we all rely on every day to be super productive in Elixir. And it's everything from just how easy it is to get up and running with XUnit and writing really comprehensive tests to tools like Credo or Elixir's telemetry offering. So I'm curious to hear from you guys, like what are the day-to-day -day tools that you reach for, let's say when starting a new Elixir project that you feel like are, are must-haves for your productivity? So it all starts with ASDF. And if you're on a Mac, that might also be where it ends because sometimes ASDF and installing Erlang is a heck of a thing. I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Definitely passing the environment variables to like not accept SSL certificates or whatever the heck the option is. <laughs> and yeah, you'll be fine. Yeah. I I definitely been fighting uh, ASDF install Erlang a little bit today. So cranky about that, but honestly, Mix really does a lot of lifting for you when it comes to it comes to getting started. I typically don't add Credo or um, like that kind of supportive. I see it more as maintenance tooling uh, when I'm getting started because then I don't want to. I don't want to play by anyone else's book. I just go. But typically after a while, there's credo, there's checking that the formatter has been run, there's warnings as errors, uh, and, and some nice, some simple CI GitHub actions, or, or if we're allowed to mention your competitors, GitLab, that's also, also a thing. Oh, but yeah, there, there's a lot of I think most of the tooling I rely on getting started with a project is just Mix and its generators uh, and the Phoenix generators. Um, and that takes me pretty far. And whether I'm doing a project sort of in the, in the canonical context-y style, or I'm trying the more heretical approach we discussed with Keithley recently, um, that sort of determines how much further I use generators. 
because uh, there, there's no generator for heresy as far as I know at the moment. Yeah, I think uh, with the uh, the new Phoenix release, that's a uh, release candidate right now. I think some of these things are like even easier than they were before, which is nice because maybe some of those blind spots are are being covered up. Um, you know, now we have the H E E X uh, templates, which will validate that your HTML is actually valid HTML, which I know was a pretty big pain point for for me because you know I'm a you know, I'm a forgetful person. So sometimes I'll, you know, forget a closing tag and then my whole live view kind of uh, implodes. But um, yeah, so I mean, it's great to see those kinds of, um, uh, you know, gaps being filled. And then, you know, on the generator side, it looks like we now have SQLite generation uh, support uh, in, in Phoenix, which is awesome. I'm, I'm excited to see what kinds of projects are made on like these super, super lightweight stacks with, you know, no external database, nothing, just, you know, SQLite writing to a file and keeping it super, uh, super slim and simple. So yeah, I, even when there are blind spots, it seems like they are covered up and, uh, and fixed and addressed rather quickly. I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. Maybe that's speaking to the productivity again. <laughs> By mentioning SQLite, you're you're baiting me, Alex. It's like that, like spinning up a pedal stack and using SQLite. There's something so dense about just how little else you need to start building an application. And I haven't pushed that as far as I would like in terms of long-term maintaining and and working with it long-term. For me, that's I haven't pushed Live View that far either, but I don't see where it would break, honestly, because it's the code level complexity of Live View is quite low in my eyes. And that's that's sort of the interesting part. There's not all that much to keep track of, which means you don't have to write a lot of code, you don't have to maintain a lot of code. And then like the thing that probably becomes the densest is the template side. And I think that's that's sort of inevitable. Or like you could have a different approach, but then you end up with with a lot of, I guess, shared CSS, which is another challenge. So yeah, I would really like to see how far uh, you can push the pedal stack stuff, especially with SQLite and just, just get the densest stack going. I think that should be where people that are really into sort of indie, indie SaaS and indie hackerdom, uh, bootstrapping new businesses and all that, that's where they should start because you get so much for free and the ceiling for growth is so far off. Uh, like the, You won't have problems for ages with that kind of setup. And if you have reasons, you might want to use Postgres, for example. You might want to open or you might want uh, to be able to scale across a few different regions, probably easier with Postgres. But but yeah, uh, there, there's a lot going on there. And seeing SQLite move into mainline Phoenix generators is, is very nice for me. Yeah, for sure. And I, I had a uh, consulting client once where they were running Elixir and embedded device. It wasn't NERVs. They were, they were all on their own. But it was it was pedal stack with SQLite, and uh, it was a super capable product. At the end of the day, you know, had a you know had a web front end for configuration, and it was doing all of its kind of uh, you know embedded work underneath that layer. And super super powerful stack. I'm really curious, like if that becomes a really compelling kind of um, what do you call it? like a kiosk style thing, or maybe you have like a Raspberry Pi in an office building, and it's emitting a you know wireless. Uh, um, uh, network and people just attach to that and they can configure their, their Raspberry Pis in kind of like a ad hoc uh, kiosk mode. So I think that I think that unlocks some pretty interesting use cases there. And I wonder if we're going to start in in kind of the the kiosk type of application. I wonder if we're going to start to see Livebook playing a bigger and bigger role there. Um, I, I think that the idea that 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 a live book running on a standalone system that can connect to other systems is a pretty compelling model for reducing friction in a couple of places. First for new developers, but more importantly for people creating documentation, right? Like 
Alex, you experienced this when we started the NERVS book. One of the things that you'd really like to be able to do is experiment with a um, sensor without all of the friction of building the initial, you know, the firmware burns and, and the installs and things like that. But if you could have like circuits on a live book, and um, if you just drop in a couple of a couple of lines of code, and then you're interacting with the sensor at the base level, that is that's a whole new ball game, right? It's an interesting thing to think about. You know, an, another tool that really is orthogonal to the the pedal stack, but I think it accelerates it all the same. Yeah, and actually, didn't didn't Frank Cunliffe uh, release an image where you could just right from the rip, get live book going on a, a Raspberry Pi with zero effort from your side, if I recall correctly. I haven't he played did. with it. He, he did. did, right? Okay. And um, you were talking to him privately. I'd hate to hate to out him, but I'm going to anyway, right? But um, so talking to him privately, he really believes that the live book opens just a whole new world um, for nerves. And, and I tend to agree, right? Uh, because the things that you'd like to be able to do are to mix up documentation, prose, and sometimes data, right? And that's that's exactly what LiveBook does. I really like that concept for dealing with nerves. So are there any places where we see that we, we need some improvement? Um, the, the, the last shout out I'll have uh, is the, the Ziegler library. I actually started playing around with that, uh, was it last week? I think it was last week. I wrote a very simple ray tracer in LiveView that rendered a scene using Zig. And this is the first time I ever wrote Zig in my life. Never written Zig ever. Uh, first time I used Ziggler as well. And I think within like two to three hours, I had the whole thing running end to end. Again, that, that productivity that we speak of all the time. Uh, and again, Zig is a great, great, uh, or Zig and Ziggler, great, great escape hatches for when you need that, uh, you know, that raw co computation. But, uh, and again, it seemed like there was something lacking there. We had Rustler, you know, maybe we needed another tool there. And, you know, someone in the community came along and, and uh, put together a great tool. So I'm curious, what, uh, what, what gaps do we still have? I kind of have been watching NX from, from the standpoint, not of the, the problem that it solves, but the approach that was used to solve it, right? So rather than trying to, trying to build a, ser a series of data structures to, to support multi-dimensional data. Essentially, um, Jose and Sean built this, this beautiful set of wrappers and plugged into compiler support that already exists in other languages. And I kind of love that idea for, deci for deciding what, what we're really good at and what we're not in, in kind of providing it's like very seamless, clean integration to areas where, where we're not that good at them, you know, and, and we're starting to see it more and more, like with a with a Kino library that's that's a wrapper around the um, is it is it Vega Light um, the the plotting library that that went just so fast because all you're really doing is building this tiny little CRC wrapper around the the JavaScript. The, the JavaScript component, rendering that straight into a live book. And then there are basically no more problems to solve, right? It's, it's you, you provide access to an API that's already there, but, but I like this approach. So maybe we should talk a little bit about how this problem is solved with NX. So NX is really about numerical computing and numerical computing is about multi-dimensional, typed multi-dimensional data, which Elixir doesn't solve really well, right? Because with, with Elixir, lists are implemented as linked lists and, and they're pretty inefficient in a, couple of play, in a couple of ways. One, the area of mutability, which NX does not solve, but also the area of random access. You need to be able to um, access any, any item in the tensor at any time. And that Elixir is just not good at. So what what index does instead is it takes advantage of libraries that already have tensors that are implemented in other languages in compiler support for projects like PyTorch, which is a data, data science numerical computing library in Python, and XLA, which is accelerated linear algebra implemented by Google, and effectively builds these tiny little wrappers with macros that build this intermediate form so that you get the new just-in-time compilation 
to those libraries so that your Elixir data can be accessed in those libraries pretty much transparently. And the number of lines of code to get all the support in Elixir is just shockingly small because it's really building a wrapper instead of a um, instead of broader support. Yeah, I think, like you said, I think it's a really great way forward where you know we realize the shortcomings of the beam, and it's not necessarily like shortcomings because of bad design. It was just very uh, premeditated trade-offs that this is what we want to be good at, you know, when, in, in the runtime. And saying, okay, here are these great escape hatches. Let's use them when they're necessary. And I think this is one of those great escape hatches where we can use the beam and Elixir as kind of that orchestration layer that we've talked about in the past. And then orchestrating these other components to, to leverage what they're good at and kind of augment our, uh, our ecosystem and runtime. Yeah, definitely, definitely like that. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I also like the idea that that one of the things that index does, and one of the things that you could see these happen happening in other escape hatches like it, is, is this idea that we can say, hey, Elixir is not very good at multi-dimensional tensors and you know, type data of a fixed size, type numeric data of a fixed size. It's also not, not mutable, right? And it made one trade-off and would not compromise on the second, right? So you have this framework that looks very different in Elixir because it continues to embrace, embrace immutability as one of the core features of, of the library, but still solves random access and you know, the, the multi-dimensional data. And what you get is this, is this thing that's uniquely Elixir, right? So if, if, you, if you get a chance, play around a little bit with the Axon library. And what you see is this flow of tensors that flow one into the next. So it almost looks like it's, it's Elixir pipes that embrace multidimensional data through a whole new kind of function definition called the DefN. It's really spectacular and it's its own thing. And I think it's interesting from what I've seen of machine learning, and I've mostly been on the orchestrating side, but one of the ways in which this is typically orchestrated, if you're working with Python, I've seen something called Ray show up a few times. And that is essentially an implementation of the actor model for distributed computing in Python. So you can spread the load across essentially any number of of machines. So it's a Python library, mostly written in C++, if I'm not mistaken. And I've also heard that this model of building the, the computational graph as functional programming, essentially, is also sort of mirrored in efforts in Python, where, where there are similar APIs already being, being built. Was it JAX or like, I don't follow the space, but I've heard things. <laughs> and so work reasoning about the computational graph as immutable steps, I can see how that would be easier to deal with for, for the person building. And like the actor model is fairly easy to reason about for orchestration. So are they converging on... Like, what's that old quote about everything ending up an incomplete and poorly specified version of Erlang? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of agree with you that that what's happening is that Python is having to having to come to grips with some of the same problems that that Elixir has and Erlang has before then before NX ever existed, right? So it's it's having to come to grips with the complexity of of updates in a tensor, which is like global variables within global variables within mutable variables right and so um and so you're starting to see um adoption for languages that don't have that don't have to you know basically put all the fingers in 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 the dam right things like julia that start with a clean functional foundation and are able to um, kind of make these, these small little tweaks in areas where there are mutability. And things like Elixir and NX that, that basically have all of that foundation. I mean, once again, we see that 
the easy things are really hard, like multi-dimensional arrays, but the hard things, right? You know, the the self-healing software, um, you know, the you know, reliability, you know, building these these data structures at Flow are a lot easier. I feel like that was completely incoherent. <laughs> no, I I'm not sure it was. So I had the opportunity to speak at a meetup recently, trying to get my feet wet with all this giving conference talks. Super nervous. I was super nervous. And what I focused on there, because it wasn't necessarily an Erlang or Elixir focused event, but rather functional programming. I tried to sort of lay out what is the beam about, what is Elixir about, and where did it come from? So the heritage of Erlang and the heritage of, of Ruby. And I listed essentially what's listed on Wikipedia about what were the actual things they were trying to solve. And machine learning and heavy computation was not on there. Uh, not at the time, and it's still really not a thing that the beam strives to solve. And it doesn't need to, because that's not most of distributed systems today. But it's an increasing part, and it's very good if we have an escape patch and a solution for tackling that. But I think it would be a horrible mistake to try to sort of cram that into the beam because we would lose all of the advantages that we have. It was fun to give a talk, and uh, uh, it sort of touched on these things. Like, uh, what was it actually meant to do? Uh, and I, I did try to give some demos as well. So if you like, the talk is up. I'll link it. Yeah, please do. We'll add that to the show notes. I would love to check it out. And I'm sure our listeners would as well. Maybe I have the blinders on, but I'm really happy in Elixir. And uh, I don't see a lot of points where I'm like, oh, this sucks. I hate it. I can't stand it. So I, yeah. Why is this not more popular than it is? I mean, there are obviously people doing things with it. And I've, I genuinely do believe that you have a competitive advantage running an Elixir system as far as like agility and ability to change and clarity of the tooling. Like, I mean, the amount of time that the compiler saved my ass is like just telling me like, oh, you misspelled something by the way, or, oh, this won't run at all. Just like that everything is really helpful. I was really surprised that it's not more, not the tool people reach for. And I think Bruce, you touched on it a little bit, the idea of like training teams. It's like, it's inertia is hard. I mean, there is yep. going to be some, some like, friction from developers it's like i don't want to learn a thing which is whatever it's a different thing um but i've worked with people who have taken jobs specifically because they get to work they might get the chance to work in elixir when i was at flutter yeah. like a ton of places where like re people were really excited like oh i want to be on that project because it's cool and i want to kind of like learn about it so i'm i wonder what what the missing ingredient is and if we can get how that you don't pool, have a mega how do you get core? people from that pool um that yeah, pool I, into into the pool of people that's how do you get more people 50 today yeah that i mean we, that's that's really um an overpriced set of developers in in general mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. yeah um and what do you do with that and that's that's one of the things i'd, I'd like to think about and but yeah i think most of the languages that sort of reach broad adoption today if you look at recent-ish languages that have reached broad adoption, every single one that I know of is backed by Megacorp. It's like Swift, Kotlin, True. Go. Oh. Uh, what's more? <laughs> Your guys' favorite. Yeah, yeah but oh, you know, that's you know me. Like, uh, and Java has been a behemoth forever. Yeah. PHP forever, yeah. The same node. Yeah. Java, like, yeah, Java was like a V8. <laughs> Rust is getting there, don't you think? Yeah. I, I don't know how to get a read on how popular Rust is. I, I, it strikes me Rust as something that people who do corner. Rust. Yes. That if you're excited about Rust, you're really excited about Rust. So it's hard to kind of like gauge. That's similar to Elixir, I think. Like you get me to start talking about it and you're not going to shut me up. Yeah. So you'd think like every app built is going to be an Elixir because obviously it's great. I mean, we just closed two huge gaps in Elixir in mm -hmm. super productive web programming and machine learning. I mean, those were massive holes. Producing enough Elixir devs is not not sustainable at this point. Um, I think or, that we are doing it wrong, and I think that that's a problem. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I don't think there's like a clear, a nice way. I mean, it, again, it's like I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but like the idea of like where you get 
where you source them from, right? If you can start right. sourcing like brand, I'm brand new to computer programming and I want to be like just raw power for a project. Just like tell me where to go and I'll do it. Like that's one thing, like super beginners, people right. transitioning over. Uh, right. I don't think the incentives are there yet. It's sort of a weird thing, right? Like if there were, you know, tons of money and like a huge hole in Elixir and it was really compelling, you get people to cross over, right? Because people are here for, for some money. Um, so I think that that's starting to happen. That yeah, there is I mean, uh, that that the rates that Elixir developers are demanding are way up there. Yeah, but yeah, I think you saw the Stack Overflow surveys. I think Elixir was pretty up there. I think it was oh, a closure was number right one, there, right Rust was number two, and then I think it was like Elixir number three. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, maybe we're at we're at a point, right? And I think like you know, I think a lot about the, the I mentioned earlier, like we're here, like you said, Bruce. We need rocket right. fuel, right? Because like the problem with not having that rocket fuel to push the rocket as it goes into the ground. So right? what I think is that we have the rocket fuel and we don't have the things to go with it, right? The um, control to, to do this safely. Um, we don't have the oxygen. I mean, my metaphor is that we have the main ingredients and it's the infrastructure of the language. Um, and part of the infrastructure is how do you get people, infrastructure and logistics, let's say. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure is yeah. probably pretty good. Logistics probably aren't. Yeah. I'm not sure I care super deeply about sort of Elixir making it mainstream because that's not necessary for Elixir to keep going. I don't think, yeah. like Could look be. at Erlang, uh, that, that's a very small industry that's doing fine. Yeah. Uh, I like think this there, is better uh... for all of us to keep working with Elixir regardless if it goes mainstream or not. And I think this is a really nice note to wrap up on. So Alex, big thank you for this topic. Um, I was really excited to dig into this today and I think we had a great conversation. Hopefully our listeners who are not already convinced about how great Elixir is and how productive they can be in it are even more excited to bring it into their lives now. A uh, big thank you to our sponsor, Graxia, which is career fuel for programmers, as I think you guys know at this point. And a reminder to hit us up with your questions on Twitter at BeamRadio1, hashtag process mailbox. Ask us things, get a free t-shirt. What could be easier than that? And we'll catch you guys next time on Beam Radio. Thanks, everybody.